Good morning. Welcome. I'm happy. I got a new clicker. I haven't tested it, so yes, it works. Sam, I love you. We're Sam. Well, welcome. Today is the last in our series of eight on the uh, influential women of the Bible. We have talked about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, uh, Pastor Tim spoke two weeks ago about Lydia, and then today we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about Priscilla, and as I was reflecting upon the series, it kind of dawned on me that uh, Priscilla is the only woman in the series that we do not have any quotes from. We can look at the other ones and we can see where they, they said something, but um, there are no direct quotes from Priscilla. So what I thought was to come up with the title for the message was, uh, take a look at her life and um, use it as a model for ministry. And if you're familiar with Priscilla, you probably know what Carl just read about her and her husband's encounter with the uh, uh, Apollos. But there's actually some other little pieces of information that are scattered throughout the New Testament that, that talk about her. So I'm going to pull those together for you and make four points. And then today I'm going to take a walk on the wild side. And at the end of the message, I'm going to kind of roll up um, the role of women in ministry. Now, now my goal today is to come out of the church alive. So, so hopefully that's enough of a tease to get you to pay attention. So with that, I will jump into this. And I'll read you another passage uh, from Acts chapter 18 about Priscilla. And it says, after these things, he, or Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So what we see here is that Priscilla and Aquila actually got booted out of their home by the emperor, and they think that was about 50 A.D. And what was going on back then was that uh, they believed that there was some discord and conflict between the Jews in Rome who were following Moses and the Jews in Rome who were following Jesus. Now, from the government's point of view, the emperor's point of view, they were all Jews just squabbling. He said, just get out. So that's how they ended up leaving their home in Rome and going to, and they ended up in Corinth. Now, we don't know when Priscilla and Aquila became Christians. It's possible that they could have been at Jerusalem during uh, Pentecost because it says there were visitors from Rome there. Uh, we don't know whether some of those visitors from Rome went back home, and that's when they told Priscilla and Aquila about Jesus, or whether they ended up in Corinth and they stayed, uh, the Apostle Paul, and they encountered him, and he, they became a Christian through the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, but the Apostle Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, and it actually says that he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. So could you imagine having the Apostle Paul as a house guest for 18 months? It must have been quite an adventure. And they were tent makers. And in those days, um, the craftsmen did not compete with each other. They actually formed guilds or associations, and they would live together in the same part of the town. 
And the pagans would adopt a, a god from the local temple, and that would be their patron god to bless them and protect them. And Jews would not participate in that because obviously they were following the God of, of the Bible, following the God of Abraham and Moses. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hooked up with Paul, it, they had a natural bond, either at least with their Jewish background. But So they worked together um, or came together because of their common trade and their common background. So a couple other verses, uh, and I'm going to put these in order of if you study the life of Paul and you put them in the uh, sequence, time sequence that they follow. I'll give you a little bit more information about Priscilla and Aquila. And in the end of, and this is at the end of these epistles, you know, the things you don't read over because because Paul is saying, greet so-and-so, and you don't, you know, you just kind of like, I don't know these people, so you just skip over reading it. But actually, there's some interesting information. So at the end of Corinthians, uh, he says, uh, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And Prisca, by the way, is actually her formal name. Priscilla is kind of her pet name or uh, nickname. And Paul was writing this from, um, from Ephesus. So Paul, Priscilla and Aquila were with Paul in Ephesus, and they were writing back to the church at Corinth. So Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus. And at the end of the Romans, we see that um, um, Paul was writing to Rome, and he said, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So what we see is that Priscilla and Aquila ended up back in Rome a few years later. And then the very final words we have from Paul in 2 Timothy before he was executed, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila. And Paul was in prison in Rome at the time, and he was writing to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. So we see that Priscilla and Aquila actually moved around quite a bit. And if you look at this map of the... Uh, Mediterranean. They started in Rome. The uh, emperor kicked them out. They went to Corinth. And then they followed um, Paul to Ephesus. And then they ended up back in Rome. And then they ended up back uh, in Ephesus. So that's kind of a brief overview of where they were and how they traveled. They must have had frequent floater miles with the uh, uh, cruise lines back then. But uh, So to move four times in about 16 years is... Uh, that's a good amount of moving. So, point number one is uh, with Priscilla and Aquila is that they're always mentioned together in the scripture. She's mentioned six times, and each time is with her husband. And interestingly, four of those times she's mentioned first, which is very unusual for that period of time for the wife to be mentioned ahead of the, the husband. Scholars think that the reason for that is that she may have been the more gifted or more prominent of the two. But they were always mentioned together. They worked as a team. And um, they were one in the Lord. They were both followers of Jesus. They were one in their knowledge of the scriptures. As, as Carl just read, they were involved in instructing Apollos. Oops. They were of one occupation. They were tent makers. Uh, they were um, one in the ministry of Paul. Paul called them fellow workers. And they were one in their service uh, of the church, is that they had a home church that met in their uh, home in Ephesus, and I um, believe that may have been one of the first references to a home church that's in the Bible. So Priscilla and Aquila were united. So for us, the point we need to take away is that we need to strive to be united with our spouses on all levels. We need to strive to be united 
with your spouse on all levels. Now, we're never ever going to be totally in sync with our spouse. Those of us who are married know that. But if you don't have your house in order, you don't have your personal life in order, it's really going to be a detriment to your testimony. Because if you have chaos at home, it's not going to help you. Because if you're involved in ministry, you're going to be facing opposition. Um, Satan's going to do what he can to stop you. And the last thing you need to do is be fighting battles at home. So Priscilla and Aquila were on the same page with each other for the most part. And so we need to strive to be united with our spouses. And for those of you who are single, we can't forget single people, is that you need to consider compatibility on all levels with the person you're dating. Uh, being married is one of the most important decisions you're ever going to make, and if you start off on the wrong foot, it's, it's going to be a battle for the rest of your life. But they say opposites attract, so when you're dating somebody, you're getting to know them, it's kind of fun. And, but I will tell you, this is also true, is that opposites will drive each other crazy. So you need to be careful who you're dating. It'll, it'll set the tone for the rest of your life. Second point I want to make about Priscilla is that uh, they had to flee their home. And uh, as I said, the Emperor Claudius uh, forced the Jews to leave, and they were probably, they left probably with only what they could carry. Um, in the book of Hebrews, which many believe was written to Jews who were following Jesus, who lived in Rome, um, in chapter 10, it talks about them facing persecution, and also um, they were, had their property seized. So if this is the same time period where Priscilla and Aquila were there, they were forced out of their home. Maybe all they could carry was what took with them was all that they could carry. So they probably had to learn to travel um, lightly in this world. And as you saw, they, had, they moved back and forth several times. So... Having possessions can uh, slow you down. So as a thought, I just would throw at you, and you can think about this, is that what items would you take with you if you had to flee your home? If your house was burning, what would you run in to grab to take with you? What, would you, what value would you take? What valuable possessions would you take? The... Um, the interesting thing is I think that Priscilla and Aquila had to learn to travel lately. When they left Rome, they probably lost a lot. And it's probably helped their marriage because when all else is taken away from you, really all that you have left is each other. So that may have helped them bond in their marriage. But also, I mean, back then they had possessions like we do. We probably have many more possessions than they did. But the more you have, the more you have to lose the more you have to take care of, the more, when you buy something, you know, the price of that item doesn't end, you know, when you walk out of the store. You have to find a place to store this stuff, you have to maintain it, you have to keep it, insure it, and it's going to cost you way more than the sticker price of what you got. So, and I'm not trying to say anything bad about material things, but they need to have a proper position in your life. So what we need to learn is from Priscilla and Aquila is to travel lightly in this world. Travel lightly in this world so that you are free to go and do what God wants you to do. The third point is, is Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives. They risked their lives. The rest of the verse from Romans that I read earlier, uh, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks 
to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the church of the Gentiles. Now, we don't know what the circumstances were or where this was or when this took place, but Priscilla and Aquila were willing to lay down their lives for the Apostle Paul. Jesus said the greater love has no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friend. So by risking their life, what they essentially were doing was following the model of Jesus to lay down his life for us. So a question for you is, what are you willing to die for? As I was thinking about this, there's a story of a church over in Africa out in the village, out in the boonies somewhere, and uh, there was about 100 people in this church, and right as this service was about to start, four mass gunmen showed up, and they said, if you follow Jesus, we're going to kill you. But we're going to give you one minute. If you deny Jesus and leave, you can live. At first, everybody sat quiet, and then slowly some individuals, individuals got up and left, some families got up and left. So after one minute, there was about a dozen or so people left, the pastor, some of the elders, their wives. And the gunmen, they took off their masks, laid down their guns, turned to the pastor and said, you can begin your service now. We want to worship with you. Now, you can relax. I didn't have any of my friends from the office come in with guns to, to test you in this, but... But it's a challenging thought, you know, what would, we may not be called to lay down our lives for Jesus, but it, it might happen. So the question to you is, for what are you willing to die? The final point, oh, my clicker, Sam, my clicker's betraying me. Hello. Hello. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. And this is what Carl read. Priscilla and Aquila were able to teach and correct Apollos. Now, Apollos was described as somebody who was eloquent. And basically what that meant was it was a term that he was skilled in the art of rhetoric. Uh, public speaking, debating, philosophy. And he was very well versed in the Old Testament. He was, he was a Jew. And he uh, was just very outspoken. And like us, he knows what he, he, knew, he knew what he knew, but he didn't know what he didn't know. For some reason, he only knew Jesus up to the point of John the Baptist. Now, why his knowledge ended there, we don't know. But Priscilla and Aquila heard him talking, and they obviously went, and they filled in the rest of the blanks and talked about Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, and, and laid the case out for him that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. So Apollos was then able to take his own background with his new information and become a very powerful spokesperson for the sake of the gospel. You know, we may not become great, but may we, by God's grace and humility, help others to become great. And that's exactly what Priscilla did. Apollos went on to speak in public, something that a woman could not do in those days. So she was willing to take the risk and correct him. And for us, I think this is probably one of the hardest parts of, of our faith is, is, is confronting people. And it takes courage and tact to lovingly correct someone. It takes 
courage and tact to lovingly correct someone, and there's definitely an art to doing that. You can do it the right way, you can do it the wrong way, uh, and we probably don't do it as much as we should. I mean, we all think we have the gift of criticism. You know, we're always saying, well, so-and-so should be doing this or doing that, but, but really we need some wisdom to apply to situations is to say the right thing at the right time. And um, we just need to be able to speak the truth we need to go to battle stations when the truth is on the line. That's the bottom line, and that's what Priscilla and Aquila did. It would have been easy for them to say nothing and do nothing and say, oh, Paulus, he'll figure it out, but they took the time and effort to address him, and he went on to do great things. So those are the four points that I have for uh, Priscilla, uh, model for ministry. Her marriage was in order. Her home life was uh, on track. She traveled lightly. We saw that she moved a lot. Uh, she took her faith seriously, willing to lay down her life. And then she ministered to others. She just didn't acquire knowledge, but she did something with it. She had a house uh, church in her home. She, I'm sure, was involved with that. She was, was speaking with uh, Apollos. I'm sure she encouraged Paul and Timothy. So she just didn't just sit on what she knew, but she was a person of action. Like I said, we don't have any direct quotes from her, but we can see from her life that she was actively involved. So she's a good model for both men and women. But this was kind of an interesting time for women. Um, back in the culture, uh, it was a male-dominated society. So Paul and everybody had to be careful about not upsetting the apple cart too much. But what I wanted to do is just take some time and just, I wanted, we did this study on women, and it just, I think, to do it a little bit of justice, is I just don't want to talk about something to move on. And you may be thinking, well, God uses special people, and especially if you're a woman, you think, well, God maybe just chose those women. But God can use anybody. But if you're a woman in the church today and you take your faith seriously, you probably had a struggle with this verse or verses. And it says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now if you read that, and you're a woman, and you have a respect for the Bible, that doesn't really give you a whole lot of encouragement to get involved in ministry. All right. So what, what, what is this verse about? What, what do we make out of this? Now, you can have your opinion about it, I can have my opinion about it, but the only opinion that really matters is what the Bible has to say. And God being a God of order, when the scriptures were written, they were written by many people over many centuries, but God being the editor-in-chief would put all the pieces together so that we should have a consistent message from the beginning to the end. And one of the techniques in studying the Bible was let the Bible interpret the Bible. For example, we talk about faith, salvation through faith alone. Just real quickly, just, just to show you how this works is in Genesis, uh, Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. A little bit later in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk says, but the righteous will live by his faith. And this is a verse that the Apostle Paul used many, many times in his writings to show that we are justified in God's eyes through faith. We come to the New Testament. 
All right? For God so loved the world, this is Jesus speaking, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 puts uh, salvation by faith in his own terms. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So you see throughout the whole Bible you've got this line of salvation by faith alone, and all the points seem to line up, and you got, it makes sense. Now, occasionally you come across a verse in the Bible that doesn't quite sound right. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if you take a look at this passage and just look at the words, it almost makes it sound as if faith and works get you to heaven. So it doesn't quite sound right because it doesn't line up with the other ones, right? Because that's their salvation by faith, and then that's the verse from James, and it's off here, and what do we do about it? Well, it makes us, we've got to dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, look at the definitions of words, look at the context, the immediate context, and the broader context, and what does that verse actually say? And if you look at that and study that, which, which we mentioned when we were talking about Rahab, that verse came up, is that that verse is talking about Christian living, not about salvation. So it really is not on the line of salvation by faith. It's on Christian living or sanctification or, or some other line. So we need to take a look at how the points line up. So when we come back to the verse on Timothy about women, what points do we need to line up? What do we need to take a look at? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this 50,000-foot overview, and hopefully you can hang on with me here. Let's look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were prophetesses. Now, prophets and prophetesses were people who spoke God's word. They taught God's people. They gave the message of God to his people. And we see that Miriam, who was Aaron's sister, was a prophetess. Deborah, who was better known as a judge, she was also a prophetess. And by the way, a judge was the highest position in the land at that time. And here's a name you don't hear very often, Huldah. And the brief story behind that is that King Josiah of, Ju of Judah, who was one of the good kings, sent his high priest, who was a man, to Huldah to be instructed from the Lord on a on a particular issue. So here's a very clear example of a woman that was involved in the instruction of a man. All right, we come to the New Testament. Jesus allowed women to be in his ranks, to be among his followers. We can't appreciate it today, but back then it would have been completely scandalous for a Jewish teacher or rabbi to allow women to be a follower. So the fact that Jesus had followers, he was being a little bit radical, he was pushing the envelope. We see in Luke chapter 8, there was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many other women. There's another few chapters later in Luke where there's Mary, as, if in, as in Mary and Martha, uh, was described as she sat at his feet. Now, you can take that literally, or what the term most likely means, it's a figure of speech that's referred to someone who is a disciple who is just sitting, taking in every word that their teacher says. So what Luke is basically telling us is that Mary was not just a casual follower, but a disciple of Jesus. And then, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, a uh, phenomenal fact that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And to me, that's very important because back in those days, again, it was a male-dominated culture, women, women's testimony was not allowed in a court of law. So the fact that... Uh, for whatever reason, God wanted women to be the first witnesses he did. So again, I think that's showing 
how important women are. So what did Paul think of women in ministry? I mean, he wrote that verse from 2 Timothy about being quiet and not teaching. In Romans 16, the last chapter of Romans, Paul, as he's signing off, he mentions about twice as many men as women, but he commends about twice as many women as men regarding their ministry. So if you look through that and dig through that, he's acknowledging them, he's recognizing them, he's basically encouraging what the women are doing. He's certainly not prohibiting them. Paul mentions some other women by name. He mentioned Priscilla several times. There's Euodia and Syntyche that are in Philippians. Well, here's a name you don't hear very often, Janias. She is mentioned with a man named Andronicus. Again, that's a name that just rolls right off your tongue, right? Paul described Andronicus and Janias as, quote, outstanding among the apostles, unquote. A woman apostle? For centuries, those who have translated the Bible have tried to translate the name Janias to mean that it's a male name. They were saying that it was a contraction of a larger, of a longer male name. Nowhere in ancient literature have they ever proven that, and also the rules of usage of the Latin language prohibit it. So it was a woman's name who was referred to as an apostle. And if you look at the list of um, uh, offices and spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, apostles were at the top of the list. Another name is Phoebe, I think that's how you pronounce it. Now, Phoebe, interesting, Paul describes her as a servant. And the Greek word for that is diakonos. And that's where we get our word deacon today. But the word can also mean minister as one who ministers in teaching the word of God. And I just make this point because the apostle Paul uses the same word to describe himself as a diaconus, as a minister. So it's interesting, he uses the same word that he uh, describes Phoebe with. So did Paul really mean that women were to remain silent and not teach? I don't think the Bible is going to contradict itself, and I don't think Paul is going to contradict himself, because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul acknowledged that women could pray and prophesy in the church. Now, it's hard to do that if you're told to shut up and be quiet and sit in the back of the room, right? So, Paul was telling them women could do that. And if you look in, again, 1 Corinthians 12, the list of, of spiritual gifts, prophecy is listed higher and more noble than teaching. So, just a point to consider. Now, speaking of spiritual gifts, let's hop back to the Old Testament. The prophet Joel said this. He said, it will come about that after this I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. As you can see, women were included in this prophecy, and this was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. All right, so that's kind of what the Bible has to say, kind of an interesting little line, if you will. So what's going on culturally? I mentioned earlier that it's a very male-dominated society, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Women had it pretty rough. Most women were illiterate, and I don't think we appreciate the doors that are open to us simply because we can read. So imagine 
frowning upon women becoming educated. That was just part of the culture back then. The few women who were educated had an inferior education to those of the men. And another little interesting point from the culture is in the educational setting, the newest students were to remain quiet. Like we say, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, back then, there were dumb questions. It would have been considered rude for a new student, an uninformed student, an ignorant student, to raise a question to interrupt the teacher. Advanced students could, but uninformed people could not. So again, women, illiterate, poor education. Okay, again, think about this. Paul's telling them to be quiet and not to teach. There's a gentleman named uh, Dr. Craig Keener. He used to be a professor of New Testament at uh, uh, Palmer University, Eastern University. He's now down at Asbury. And I think he does a very good job at summarizing. Um, he said, It is probably no coincidence that the one passage in the Bible prohibiting women teaching, and again, that verse about teaching, women teaching, it's only one point in the Bible that is stated that women cannot teach. And he says, in the Bible, prohibiting teaching scriptures appears in one set of letters where we explicitly know false teachers were targeting and working through women. Paul's letters to Timothy in Ephesus provide a glimpse of the situation. False teachers were misleading the women. These women were probably some widows who owned houses the false teachers could use for their meetings. The women were most susceptible to false teaching only because they had been granted the least education. And this behavior and what he's talking about in the context was the false teaching, the bad ideas, the nonsense that was coming out from these false teachers was bound to bring reproach on the church from a hostile society that was already convinced Christians subverted the traditional roles of women and slaves. So Paul provided a short-range solution, do not teach under these present circumstances, and a long-range solution, let them learn. So, based on the verse from Timothy, it doesn't appear to follow in line with what's stated in the rest of the Bible as far as women being involved in ministry. Now, the, the verse also mentioned about Adam and Eve and Eve being deceived. Well, Paul uses a similar argument uh, in 2 Corinthians where he tells people don't be deceived like Eve was deceived in terms of of being distracted from the purity and uh, simplicity of your devotion to Christ. So again, Paul is telling men and women not to be deceived. So there's a lot going on that I think points that this verse from 1 Timothy, and we want to take the scripture seriously, but I think the best explanation for the verse from Timothy is that um, Paul and Timothy were addressing a unique situation and that's why it's stated the way that it is. Because if you're a woman and you read that, you're just like, you don't want to get involved. And what I wanted to bring that up today was that God uses anybody. In our application, as I come to a close here, is we have three things to do. Um, the first one is all of us, regardless of what you think of the role of women in ministry is, each one of us is to do what God has called us to do. Priscilla, I'm sure, had no idea what laid before her when she was uprooted from her home in Rome. 
And that seems to be the way that God works and communicates with us is through events and circumstances. We may not hear a voice from heaven that tells us you know, what our calling is, but we have to walk by faith, applying the truth of the Scriptures as best as we can and do what God has called us to do. And Paul, excuse me, Priscilla went on to minister to Apollos. This says Paul ran the house church. She did um, what God had called her to do, even though initially it probably started off as, why, God, are you throwing me out of my house? The second point is, you know, maybe we don't know what our calling is in life, but at the very least, we should help others fulfill God's call in their life. Again, we saw Priscilla assisting Apollo and straightening him out so that he could go on to become a great uh, ambassador for the kingdom of God. Priscilla helped Paul. Priscilla helped Timothy. So let's help others. And even in our own midst, we have Pastor Ben with the table ministry done in Kensington. You or I may not feel comfortable or safe dealing with homeless drug addicts. Ben does. Tremendous ministry, and it's growing. Patterson, New Jersey, Cleveland, Ohio. It looks like it's ready to explode. And we need to do all that we can as a church body to support him. Also, Pastor Tim is involved in the P31 ministry, the marketplace missionary idea that's exploding in Korea. By supporting him and allowing him to go to Korea, he's able to teach over a thousand men and women how to be an influence for Jesus in the marketplace. And our third point is don't disqualify anybody because of gender. Don't disqualify anybody because of gender. And ladies, don't disqualify yourself because you're a woman. You are a daughter of the king. That makes you a princess. So the next time you look in a mirror, look yourself in the eye and say, I'm a princess. Just the ladies. Guys don't do that, okay? <laughs> ladies, you are gifted. You're talented. You have God's spirit dwelling within you. You have contributions to make to the body of Christ. And I invite you to do that. Don't be timid. And we shouldn't disqualify anybody because of any other outward appearance, age, education, social, economical status. Because what we've seen is God, through the study of women, God's used some women that had some pretty colorful backgrounds. The prostitutes, the demon-possessed. And the point is that God can use anybody. We just need to make ourselves available. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you.